Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear more about Marshall Fire survivors dealing with complicated insurance processes, and we hear how recovery is going for one family from Superior. I think we're progressing to the moving on (laughs) stage, I'm not sure. And we look back on the life story of Colorado civil rights pioneer Barney L. Ford. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. More than a month after the state's most destructive wildfire, the Marshall Fire, survivors are still pressing ahead with recovery. In a bit, we'll hear from residents in Boulder County who lost everything and what it's like to go through the complicated insurance claims process. But we're going to start the show today by checking in with Marshall Fire survivor Stephen Boatwright. He, his wife, their three children, dog, cat, and hamsters, all evacuated from their home in the Sagamore subdivision of Superior during the fire on December 30th. We first spoke to Stephen back in January. He joins us today to share where his family is in the recovery process a month later. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back on. Well, first of all, we last spoke with you in early January. It was just about a week after your family lost your home in the Marshall Fire. How are things going for you now? Um, well, I think they're they're progressing. I guess I don't I'm not really sure what the what the gauge is on how we're supposed to be doing. I think we're we've we've been pretty fortunate. I think we touched on this on the the last call. Was the community support is really really helped us through this and i think we're we're progressing to the moving on <laughs> stage i'm not sure but we we've we've got some sifting done and we've got our kind of finances in order and made some decisions here and uh, have been able to get out of the area to remove ourselves from the situation of the kids so i think we're i think we're doing well right you mentioned that you were sifting. Um, I remember you saying that you had meant to take your mother's ashes with you when evacuating, but you weren't actually able to grab them in the chaos. Were you ever able to find the container with the ashes? Yeah. Um, so I went up. I went up two days in a row. Uh, my wife and the kids all came down with COVID. Uh, well, we all did, but my son came down with it first. So she stayed back with him in the, in the hotel and isolated. And I had this little window where there was not going to be any snow and there was no snow on the ground. So I wanted, I wanted to get up there and, and start looking. There was also reports of people kind of walking around and looting. And um, I guess that's not uncommon in this type of situation, but I went up and put on the, the protective gear with the, the respirator mask and the gloves and the eye, the eyeglasses and everything. And I, started in the garage and just started sifting and wasn't having much luck. There was little things here and there and then looked down into the basement area and there was a bunch of aluminum framing that was all warped. So I rented a Sawzall from Home Depot and 
got in there and just started cutting away some of the stuff because I could see in one little section that there was stuff that was not ash. So, but it was kind of hard to get to it. So I was cutting through that and getting down in there and uh, I was able to find this plastic bin, which had a bunch of photos in it kind of melted on top of itself and sealed it. <laughs> and, um, then I <clears throat> was digging more and I found some of uh, my mother's jewelry, which was pretty great. Uh, but just the amount of ash and rubble that I was standing on top of, and I only had half of a shovel. It was the shovel that was, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't go on a Home Depot, but the shovel itself didn't have the handle. So I was using that and, uh, I uh, had a little bit of luck finding some other things. And then probably about five hours in, I just was wrapping it up at about four o'clock. It was getting a little colder, Went back up to the garage because I didn't remember. I thought maybe I had put the whole bin with her ashes in the kitchen which would have now been in the basement, but I wasn't having any luck there. Uh, so I just went up to the garage to do a little bit more. And then <clears throat> kind of over by our little exercise area, I was digging and found, I started seeing a lot of melted green glass and she was in a little jar. And then I, I saw just the compacted uh, area of ash so there was a pretty big breakdown there, um, of course. Um, but it was a mix, a mix of a bunch of emotions. And then I also had had like a little vial that you can wear around your neck because I plan on spreading rashes when I was up skiing. And I knew that was next to my bed, <clears throat> excuse me. And all of the stuff from our bedroom had clearly shifted and maybe the wind had blown the frame of the house as it was burning. So it was outside of the basement. So after I had found those, I went back down over there and I saw some things that were beside my bed. So I started digging there and I found that 10 minutes later. That must have felt amazing. It was, it was the strangest feeling. It was so much happiness and sadness and frustration and anger. Because, I mean, there was nobody else up in that neighborhood that I could see. So it was just myself. The sun is going down. I'm digging through our, you know, our whole lives. And I find that it was... There was, I don't know if anybody drove by, but they probably heard some primal scream coming <laughs> from uh, from this random person. But uh, that was that was fantastic. That was once I drove home and talked to my wife, we both felt like we had a little bit of closure because there's a lot of stuff we lost up there. But for to get that back was was like okay, anything else is is the icing on the cake. We're speaking with Marshall Fire survivor Stephen Boatwright. Now, your family was renting your home, uh, and you mentioned you didn't have a renter's insurance. But the last time we spoke with you, a GoFundMe had been set up for your family and had gathered more than $50,000. I'm wondering if you've received that money yet. Yeah, we put in for the deposit and the transfer. Uh, so we we did get that money, uh, which is great. Uh, that That... That was amazing. And I had just met up with a group of my high school friends. We went up on a, a ski trip that we'd planned six months ago. And even, even those guys were talking about that GoFundMe, the names that they were seeing on there, they were, they were all blown away at the, the outpouring of support. What kind of other aid have you received? And it, it, does it feel like enough to push forward? Well, again, not going through this before, I'm not sure what what that recovery looks like. We did, we did a, a spreadsheet and kind of went room by room of what we think it's going to cost, which is 
which is such a crazy thing to even think about doing where you go through the living room, you're like, okay, couch, uh, rug, art. I don't know. What do we, we got to buy things for frames for the wall. Uh, and then you go to the kitchen and you're going spatulas, you're going can openers, you're going plot, pot, pans, plates. So to do that inventory and figure out maybe what the budget looks like to rebuy everything. And then, uh, kind of go from there. We think we're in an okay spot, but again, we don't, don't really know the additional funding we we have gotten some money from Basecamp collective they started to go fund me for everyone affected by this and then we're paying out people as quickly as the the money was coming in and uh, that was that was pretty great and then i think the the colorado realtor association i don't know if i'm getting that one correct but they also had um a grant too for people so there's been additional um money coming in here and there have you thought about where you and your family will live next? Yeah, we, we've kind of been all over the map for the past month. And we know we're not staying in the area. And that's kind of been a disadvantage and an advantage to us. We, we know we're not going to stay and we're thinking probably going back west. Uh, we're not sure. We're trying to get closer to her parents if we can. Um, but the people who are staying here and that we're affected by the fire have, I think they've, it's a bit of a struggle for them because obviously the rental market is, has been crazy and there's been some price gouging going on and them trying to keep their kids in the same school district, at least until the end of the year. So I, I don't know, I feel, I feel like we're in an okay position in that regard. Well, Stephen, just to wrap up, I'm wondering if you have made connections with other survivors, maybe even friends over the last month that you will keep in touch with? Well, I definitely think the Sagamore neighborhood, right on our, our Fox Lane, we had that group of five or six houses where kids are playing every day. We're still, we text every day and we have chat groups uh, on Slack or WhatsApp where we're, we're connecting and there's meetups and just them sharing their experiences and us sharing our experiences and just trying to support. And I think our kids... We were, we were telling them we move away, like, oh, we're not going to see our friends again. I said, I'm pretty sure you're going to be connected to these kids for the rest of your lives. Just you don't realize what you guys have really gone through, but pretty sure you'll know those kids for a long time going forward. And how are your kids doing? They're, they, seem, they seem good. My wife is getting back to the, the homeschooling a lot more this week, so they're just bummed about that. <laughs> 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 they don't want to do algebra or my son doesn't um rightly so but uh, i think i think they're doing oh, okay my sister actually found a couple of the the childhood dolls that they had and they lost and she found them on ebay and found the exact replicas and sent them sent them off so they've been getting so much um so much support and, and love i think they're doing all right Stephen Boatwright is a father of three, former Superior resident, and Marshall Fire survivor. Stephen, thank you so much for speaking with us. I hope we'll check back in again with you soon. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you following up. Boulder County residents who lost everything in the Marshall Fire are now dealing with the complicated aftermath of putting their lives back together. 
This includes filing insurance claims and sometimes having to send in detailed inventories of belongings that were lost in the blaze, a task that is not always easy to do. KUNC's Lee Patterson has more. Turn your house upside down. Whatever falls out is what's covered by the possession piece of your insurance policy. That's how it was explained to Smitha Sundarason recently. She lost her home in Louisville in the Marshall Fire. Having lived in the house for like 17 years and um, trying to account for every single thing that's in the house is kind of impossible. The family heirlooms from her grandmother feel particularly impossible to inventory. These were like really old antique uh, pots and pans made of brass. And I was hoping to hand it down to my children. So things like that, what kind of value do, do I put on it? State law requires that insurance companies pay out at least 30 percent of the policy's contents coverage up front. That's the percentage Sundarason has gotten so far. But getting reimbursed beyond that can require a detailed inventory of belongings. Having gone through this, this big of a trauma, um, I kind of, I'm doubting my memory and if I'll be able to recall everything I had. So that's one of the biggest challenges we have from insurance right now. These experiences are common. The Colorado Division of Insurance has fielded almost 500 phone calls and emails related to the Marshall Fire. Representatives have met with hundreds more at the Disaster Assistance Center, talking through issues like living expenses, underinsurance, and inventory lists. It raises red flags for us that people are dealing with um, the frustrations of the inventory requirements that some insurance companies are putting people through. Commissioner Mike Conway heads up the Colorado Division of Insurance. They've been asking companies to simplify their reporting requirements. And we're hopeful that that still will happen. Uh, but I also think that if, if that doesn't happen, I think you'll, you'll likely see a response at the Capitol. A bipartisan group of state lawmakers has just introduced a bill to address the inventory issue. Among other provisions, it would increase the minimum upfront reimbursement from 30 to 80 percent. State Representative Judy Amabile of Boulder is one of the sponsors. The reason that we're bringing the bill is because of the East Troublesome fire. That was the motivator. That fire devastated Grand County in October of 2020. The bill has been in the works since last June. During a town hall in Grand County, Amabile remembers hearing a story from a survivor who had to document a pair of socks. She's been having similar conversations since the Marshall Fire. For many, she says, home is fundamental to safety and well-being. And it's also the biggest investment you have. And if it's underinsured or if you're having to do some epic battle to get what you are owed, that is incredibly traumatic on top of trauma. To be clear, not all insurance companies require detailed inventories, and many do pay homeowners more up front than the required 30 percent. Colorado's insurance industry has concerns about the legislation. Carol Walker, who is the executive director of the Rocky Mountain Insurance Association, believes it could increase premiums. It's partially on the consumer, she says, to understand that these catastrophic events are the new normal. So we now need to be thinking of what if I were in a catastrophic event? What does my insurance cover? What doesn't it cover? Now, unfortunately, we know that with the Marshall Fire that people are now learning the language of insurance. Smitha Sundarason and so many others are in the thick of learning this new language. If you are a normal person, insurance is something that you just pay for. And 
that's it. You move on with your life. Instead, Sundaresan and her family have been going back and forth with the insurance company. They have gotten some assistance from the Boulder Community Foundation, as well as a loan from the federal government. Out of this process, her advice for others? Pay attention to the details of your homeowner's insurance. You realize that actually there are differences between different insurance companies. The way they you know, handle your claim uh, is, is pretty critical. The insurance legislation, which could take effect this summer, is expected to be discussed for the first time at the State House next week. Lee Patterson, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. On Tuesday morning, Governor Jared Polis proclaimed February 1st as Barney Ford Day. Democratic Representative Leslie Harrod sponsored a bipartisan bill to recognize Ford, which lawmakers adopted yesterday. House Majority Leader Denea Escar said on Twitter, This month we celebrate the vast contributions Black Americans like Barney L. Ford have made to our society and culture. Black history is integral to understanding U.S. history and fundamental to the fight for greater equity and justice. But who was Barney L. Ford? The brief version is that Mr. Ford escaped slavery at the age of 26 and came to Colorado back when it was still a territory. He helped others escape slavery using the Underground Railroad and became a highly respected businessman who lobbied that Colorado not become a state until African Americans received the right to vote. He was successful in that effort, and that is only part of his remarkable story. Back in June, Alana Schreiber dug into Mr. Ford's life and legacy for Colorado Edition. Throughout his life, Barney Ford was a barber, restaurateur, hotel manager, civil rights pioneer, and all-around entrepreneur. In the 1870s, he was known as the Black Baron of Colorado, being the 14th wealthiest man in the territory. But back in 1822, he was born into slavery in Stafford, Virginia. I might uh, point out that he was the offspring of a slave woman and her slave owner. Steve Shepard is a former board member and volunteer at the Black American West Museum in Denver, who has researched and reenacted Barney Ford. The breakthrough in Barney's learning came after the mistress of that plantation sold Barney to a very, very learned person and would constantly read Shakespeare and and other upscale documents. And Barney would listen and learn the diction, and he also learned to read. By the time Barney was about 18, he was leased out to a showboat. There, he met someone who would change the course of his life. While he was on that ship, he befriended one of the actors, and that actor was part of the abolitionist movement. He promised Barney that he would help him to escape slavery. So one day, the actor helped Barney to dress up as a slightly built white woman and helped him to escape that boat. He followed the North Star, as most escaped slaves did, and made his way to Chicago. And while he was in Chicago, Barney helped other former slaves escape to freedom. In fact, he would transport slaves from Chicago to the Canadian border for their freedom. Barney did have to be very careful as he did this because, once again, he was an escaped fugitive slave. 
At this time, Barney was also working at a barber shop where he heard talk of the Western gold rush, and he decided that he and his new wife, Julia, should be a part of it. So after a brief stint running a hotel and restaurant in Nicaragua that the U.S. later bombed during tensions over land ownership, he finally made his way to Colorado by mule train. He had no idea what a mule skinner was, but he booked himself on one of the mule trains and eventually learned that trade and made his way to Colorado. Barney came to Colorado for gold, but after he was swindled out of a claim to a gold mine by an attorney, he moved to Denver and started a restaurant until a massive fire in 1863 burned it down. And in order to rebuild, he would need a loan. He decided that he would apply to a Mr. Kuntz at the future Colorado State Bank for $1,000. Mr. Kuntz told him that since he was an honest man, that he had developed a strong reputation as a businessman in Denver, that he would loan him $9,000. Barney was pretty apprehensive about taking that $9,000 since he had been swindled and chased off his gold mines and so on. He would go ahead and take that, but he needed to pay it back just as soon as he could. Well, he paid it back in record time, in nine months. And that's how I developed such a strong reputation as a businessman in the Denver area. The restaurant was incredibly successful, and Barney made a ton of money. But he was frustrated that Colorado lawmakers still refused to grant African Americans the right to vote. So he and Julia went back to Chicago to get their thoughts together. While they were in Chicago, a group of businessmen and Black politicians and activists decided that they would ask Barney to go to Washington, D.C., to convince the uh, national legislature to not grant Colorado statehood until it did grant the black vote. Well, that was a successful move because Colorado, even though they were applying for statehood in 1865, it was not granted because of that reason. Colorado didn't become a state until 1876. And by then, the 15th Amendment, which granted African-Americans the right to vote, had already been ratified. And he was very, very pleased with that. In fact, he decided to come back to Colorado because he knew that he could be very effective in the political area. Barney eventually ran for state legislature, but lost to a white Southerner who argued that Barney shouldn't be elected not because he was Black, but because he was kind of a rich show-off. That really depressed Barney for some time. But Barney did, did stay active in politics and eventually was appointed to the Colorado Grand Jury as well as the Board of Bank Examiners. At that time, practically the only African-American who was involved in that level of politics. His racial identity didn't matter because he was providing income to those other folks who were investing in his operations. So at that time, Barney had an income which was 14th highest in the uh, Colorado area. So that's how he developed that name, the Black Baron or Mr. Barney Ford. Barney Ford was an entrepreneur through and through. When his hotel in Nicaragua was bombed, he started a barbershop and restaurant in Denver. When that burned down, he rebuilt it, and later two premier hotels in Denver and Cheyenne, and somehow also found the time to build a school for the formerly enslaved. 
And when his hotels went under in the economic collapse of the 1870s, he started a restaurant in Breckenridge, which he operated until shortly before his death in 1892. No matter how much he earned and how much of a high-profile person he was, he still wanted to reach out and to help his fellow man. To this day, you can visit the building in Denver where Barney once operated his businesses. Although the building itself was not a stop on the Underground Railroad, Steve says that it makes sense to recognize the building as part of Underground Railroad history. The impact of the Underground Railroad on Barney Ford's life is the reason that that building at 1514 Blake Street has been noted as being related because it meant so much to Barney Ford. Not only did it help him to escape slavery, but he spent so much of his time and his life helping to further the Black population through the Underground Railroad. The story of Barney Ford is just one of the amazing journeys of the formerly enslaved. And with Juneteenth now recognized as a national holiday, Steve is hopeful that more stories like Barney's will come to light. Just this past two weeks, I was able to travel to Tulsa, Oklahoma for the commemoration of the Tulsa massacre. And one of the outstanding points of that was that I have friends who are in their 70s who grew up 30 miles away from Tulsa and had never heard of that. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And those who do not remember their past are condemned to repeat their mistakes. That's the reason that we study history and that we study lives like Barney Ford. That was Steve Shepard, a former board member and volunteer at the Black American West Museum in Denver, who has researched and reenacted Barney L. Ford. He spoke with Alana Schreiber in June. And that's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, charitable giving in the U.S. hit a record high in 2020. But according to a recent report, organizations are significantly underfunding women and girls of color. We'll hear about one Colorado foundation working to make a change. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.